Today we start a new series. That series is called The Screw Tape Letters. It's a really interesting title for a series. It was a very interesting title for a book. It's a book that was written by C.S. Lewis years ago. And um, what it is, is it's, a, it's an understanding of what he saw as the inner workings of the spiritual realm that were happening around a believer, a man who is at First, not a believer, but he comes to faith in Christ. He starts to join a church. He comes into fellowship with the church. And these letters are called the screw tape letters because they're letters from an uncle whose name is Screw Tape, and he is writing to his nephew, whose funny name is Wormwood. Aren't you glad your uncle and your nephew aren't named those names? So they're writing back and forth, they're they're corresponding, but they're not human uncle and nephew. They're actually demons. They're seeking to try to get this guy who they call the patient off his game. So as he starts to hear about things in in faith and someone introduces him to God, he gives his heart and his life to the Lord. He starts to fellowship with the church and these demons are corresponding back and forth, trying to see what they can do to knock him off of that train headed in that direction. And so as they write together, you'll hear them talk from what we would consider an upside down point of view. When we talk about the enemy, what do you think of here in this room? When we say the enemy, we think of the devil. When they write of the enemy, they're actually in this book writing about God himself because it's their ideology. It's them corresponding back and forth. I want to read to you a short little um, excerpt just from the first chapter, which is the first letter. This is the uncle, Screwtape, writing to Wormwood. And he says, my dear Wormwood, I want you to listen closely to this this morning. I note what you say about guiding our patience, reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a bit naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as the result of a chain of reasoning. But what with the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man, the patient, this is the human they're talking about, your man has been accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Jargon, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it's strong or stark or courageous. That is the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. So they're seeking to undo everything that is leading this man in the path of righteousness and towards God. 
So today we start this series called the Screwtape Letters and Obviously, we are taking a dive into scripture. We're not using this text as a text for a message series, but we're highlighting something really unique and you can download it on Kindle. It's an interesting read. You can see videos online, YouTube and things like that of dramatic uh, productions of the Screwtape Letters. I had the privilege, Amy and I, of going to see Max McLean on Broadway in New York um, perform the entire thing of the Screwtape Letters. And it was really, really insightful. Um, really, really awesome to just have that inside view of what it looks like for those in the other realm and the work that they do. Believing something doesn't make it true. Thank you. I pay that lady, that beautiful lady in that blue shirt right there. I pay her to say, that's right. Amen. You go, honey. (laughs) Believing something doesn't make it true. It was true or false before you believed it to be so. Refusing to believe the truth about something makes you a fool. If somebody tells you this is the truth about something and you refuse to believe it, it's foolish for you to continue to believe otherwise. Well, we would say it's foolish when presented with the truth to not accept it as the truth. I'll give you a short example, a very small, minor example. My daughter, she's seven years old. She's already dealing with friendship issues. How many of you have ever had friendship issues? Okay, she's dealing with friendship issues and she's learning and she's growing in the midst of this. And she has this feeling that there are some school friends that you know one favors the other over her and she's kind of less than and she's not in the right position and all this stuff. So we're trying to encourage her the right approach and how to take this. But I'm telling her the truth about the fact that she's beautiful, she's intelligent, even if she did, and she was really sad, she made a 94 this week. (laughs) College kids, yeah, go ahead, let it out, go ahead, laugh. (laughs) She was so disappointed that she made a 94, and she really thought that her friend, who always seems to ace the test, was going to look down on her because of it. So I'm sitting there as her father trying to convince her of the truth that she's intelligent, just like her mama, that she is awesome in every way, shape, and form, and I can see in her eyes she's not understanding and receiving the words I'm saying. She's still holding on to something because of a feeling. Your feelings, come on now, somebody, your feelings are not truth. All right? So we have got to believe the truth about something. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. If you want to go there with me, you can. We'll be there just for these two verses. I referenced it last week in my message, but it fits in this week's message as well. It says, Jesus was speaking to Jews who believed in him. Okay, so he's talking to people who are following him, believing in him. And he says these words, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 36 continues, he says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So when we take a look at this new series that we're going into, we want to understand that God is the source of all truth. His word is what makes us free. The Bible calls Jesus, the Son of God, the Word. And he is the one who can make us free. So over the next several weeks, we're going to examine the scriptures with the goal of uncovering the truth and looking at the the reality of supernatural beings, namely the devil and demons. 
You say, well, this is really interesting, Pastor. Uh, we always talk about Jesus and God. Well, we're going to talk about them, but it's important that you know about the enemy. I want to say this as a caveat. You might think it's strange to do a series on the devil and his demons, but I want you to hear this statement. Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, which is an ancient Chinese military treatise, he wrote something that still stands the test of time today that many militaries use all different types of strategy from him and things of that nature. And this is what he said. Listen closely. Now, the reason the enlightened prince and the wise general conquer the enemy whenever they move and their achievements surpass those of ordinary men is foreknowledge. You can ask any military commander and they'll concur with this thought that force alone cannot win the day. If you run into a place like a bull in a china shop, but you don't know what the place looks like, you don't know where the people are hiding in the place you're going, you don't know the stuff that you need to know, force alone cannot win the day. Intelligence matters. And when I say that, I don't just mean you being a smart individual. I mean military intelligence plays a huge role in victory. Foreknowledge matters. It's one of the most important aspects of warfare. Another word we could use is we could use the word reconnaissance. There are, there are troops all over the globe that work for different armed forces of different nations, and they perform reconnaissance. They go in as spies to spy out the land, to scout, and to go before the battle starts so that they know what the battlefield looks like, what problems they're going to face when they get there. You will not be fully prepared to defeat the enemy when you meet him on the battlefield unless you know who he is, unless you know how he behaves, and unless you know what he's done in the past. If you can examine an enemy, if we're talking about nation-to-nation -nation warfare, and you can see the chronological history of how they've performed before, then you can have an inkling as to how they're going to behave in the future. Although they do adapt, it's important to know who your enemy is and how he behaves. Remember the Old Testament account of 12 spies? 12 spies that were sent to go into the promised land, right? They're sent to go in the promised land and there's some disagreement between the spies. 10 come back and they're shaking in their boots. There's no way we can go in there. We can't defeat them. I look like a grasshopper in their sight. They were performing recon. They were going to check it out to see what was going to happen. They were scoping things out. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back and said, man, we got this. We can handle this but it wasn't as easily done as said. It was a lot more harder for them, a lot more difficult for them when rubber met the road because then they had to go into the promised land, but it wasn't without battle. And they had to have a strategy. And every time the Lord went before them, they won. Every time they trusted their commander, come on, hear it this morning, they won. And every time they gave in to other things, they found themselves on the losing side. I recently came across some interesting details about the Six-Day War. How many of you remember studying that or you, you know what I'm talking about when I say Six-Day War, okay? Several of us understand that. I'll give you a little insight into it. It happened in June 1967, and I came across some interesting details about it the other day. The Arab nations of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan all decided that they were going to wipe Israel off the map. 
Those three nations had financial and material support from no less than nine other nations. If you're counting, that would be 12 nations, okay? 12 groups of people that were coming against Israel. They were still mad. Here's the deal. This is why it happened. They were still mad that Israel became a nation in 1948. So now 20 years later, they've held a grudge. They continue to be angry about the fact that Israel has been declared a state. And now all things have been uneasy for this 20 plus year period. And then they decide we're going to attack. They call the UN. The UN draws out the, the troops that are in the Sinai Peninsula. And then Egypt is going to come in and advance against Israel. So they're hoping to eliminate her off the world stage. The Six-Day War, however, was a decisive victory for the nation of Israel. The tiny nation of Israel. It's like the size of Rhode Island, okay? The tiny nation of Israel with 12 armies against it, had a decisive victory. Israel's tremendous military success, it said, came not only as a result of their high level of training and expertise and courage of her pilots and her soldiers and those who were helping, but also as the, as the actual distinct result of accurate intelligence. Author Samuel Katz wrote this and he says, it is safe to assume that in no time in the history of modern warfare has a nation been equipped with such an intimate portrait of the enemy's disposition, deployment, abilities, and inabilities as the Israeli defense forces were on the morning of June 5th, 1967. So a preemptive airstrike happens that day by the Israelis and it catches the Egyptians unaware. The strike was only possible thanks to a man named Aaron Yariv, the director of Israeli military intelligence. You say, wow, pastor, this is really good. I'm learning about the devil. You're giving me history lessons. I should put more money in the offering today. Absolutely, go for it. So Yariv, he had been, listen to me, preparing for this war that didn't start yet for two years. How was he preparing for this war? He was preparing in advance by sending his agents into Egypt, masquerading themselves as cooks and soldiers to enlist in the Egyptian army and to be placed on Egyptian air bases so that he could get reports of every movement and every plan they had. Two years prior to the day of the battle starting. I want you to think about that for a moment. So the Israeli military learned then where every single Egyptian plane was and would be, every pilot's name, the background of every commander, the schedule for the pilots, the ground crews, the tower controllers, all the Egyptian communication codes, the battle codes, all of that stuff they knew. And on that day and in the course of those six days, they destroyed, Israel destroyed more than 450 planes guaranteeing themselves air superiority throughout the war for those next few days. And in six days, a ceasefire was signed. There's a reason why it's called the Six-Day War. It only lasted six days. But the reason why it only lasted six days was because that preemptive strike happened that wiped out the resources of the enemy. They knew where the enemy was, 
And I'm, as I'm reading accounts, they knew that it was breakfast time. And that's exactly when they struck. All the pilots are going into the mess hall to get breakfast, 7.45 a.m. that morning. And here come all of the bombers bombing the airfields and getting rid of every bit of military strength that they had against Israel. I don't want to be weird or make it sound weird, but we need to have that same idea and approach to the enemy of God because he's our enemy as well if we're God's children. Let me be clear at the outset. God's enemy is our enemy. We have to understand that and come to grips with the fact that there is a battle that is ensuing and being waged both for our own livelihood and lives, but also for those around us. We have to understand there is a real enemy with a real scheme and a real approach and a real strategy. There are two extremes that Christians have adopted when it comes to the devil, as it pertains to the devil. One is we can go on one extreme and we can deny Satan, deny his, exist, his existence, we can deny his character, deny his behavior, Eh, it's not really that big of a deal. If I said to you, tell me what the devil looks like, you would, all of you, right then, just the power of mind control, you thought of what? What you've seen all your life, like two horns, a long tail, he's got a pitchfork, he's red, looks like he's angry, you know, that kind of thing. We all think of that, but here's what we've got to understand. We can't deny or downplay his character, his behavior, and his position or his strategy. The second extreme that Christians go to is they obsess over him. Now, I've met some wacky people in my life, and you're not one of them, sure, but maybe you've met some wacky people in your life who think that every time they get a cold, it's the devil's fault. And every time something bad happens, it's because there's a devil hiding behind a bush that spooked that deer and made the deer run out on the highway. No, the deer just ran out on the highway because deer do that. So they go to the other extreme and they end up blaming a lot on the devil. And I would say obsessing over him and giving him too much credit, more credit than he deserves. So we don't seek to give him undue prominence today, but we do seek the truth about our foe. I want to give you today some actionable intelligence. I want to provide for you, like the commander of a military, some intelligence that you can take action on today against the enemy so that we can live in the victory that Christ has provided for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says this, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. In the passage of scripture there in 2 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's actually speaking about forgiving someone. I want you to listen to me today. I've prayed before this message that the eyes and the ears of your spirit would soak the word of God in today and that you would hear what your pastor is saying to you. Paul is writing to them and telling them to forgive someone who has offended him and offended the church. He says this, forgive so that Satan can't, can't take advantage of you. Offense is one of the enemy's major devices. 
This is actionable intelligence. This is something you can act upon today. The truth of God's word says that one of the schemes, one of the devices of the enemy is to get you mad and get you hurt about something that's probably not important and get you all riled up about it. And then he's got his hooks in you and he can keep you sad. He can get you mad at everybody around you. His his goal will be accomplished in your life. And I've seen it. You might look at me and say, you know what? You're 35 years old. What do you know about life? I'm a pastor's kid. I've been raised in spiritual environments all my life. I've seen Christians act worse than people who were in the world. I've seen some horrible things take place because people were misguided by the enemy and they didn't even know it. So I'm telling you today, those of you who are listening with your spirit, don't allow offense to lie where it is. Get rid of it and do what Paul says, forgive so that it's clean and you're done, lest Satan should take advantage of you. Wake up this morning. Here's what you need to know. Number one is this. God is the only uncreated being. Can somebody say amen? He is the creator of the universe and everything that dwells inside of it, the scripture tells us. He has never been created. No one, because there's no one more powerful than him, could create him. He always was. He always will be. He exists outside of our human time. And how many of you enjoyed an extra hour of sleep maybe maybe this morning? Or you just got to church early, which is awesome. You should do that every week. I mean, this is cool. But God is the only uncreated being. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, and probably the majority of you in this room today could say that by memory. In the beginning, God. The very first chapter of the Bible, the very first verse, he always has been and always will be. He is the only uncreated being. So I say that so that we know about our enemy, that he was created. He's a creature. He is not, it is not like the Chinese symbol of the yin and the yang, equal power of light and equal power of darkness. No, that is absolutely not biblical or correct. He is a creature that was created and God, number two, did not create Satan to be Satan. So if we're talking about doing some recon and we're going to look in the word of God and understand who our enemy is and what he does and how he's behaved throughout time. Genesis chapter two, verse one and two says this. I want you to listen to this this morning. It's so good. Okay. Verse one, it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Repeatedly in chapter one, verse 31, we're told that God created and what he created was good. All that God makes is good. Amen. This includes the heavenly host. If you've ever had a question or a thought about where did the devil come from? How did this whole thing happen? Maybe you've gotten some different opinions throughout time. Maybe you're like, Screwtape is writing to Wormwood. He says, hey, bounce a dozen different ideas in his head. I want to just narrow your focus today to understand where he came from. All that God makes is good, and this includes the heavenly host. The word host is basically a military term. It has to do with, it's connected with fighting and making war. God created the angels. 
We see that very clearly in chapter 2 there in Genesis. Psalm 148 verse 2 says this, Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. If you're, if you're jumping ahead with me, you might already be thinking, in the nativity scene, Luke chapter 2, when we hear about Jesus and his birth announcement that happens, what does it say in chapter 2, verse 13? It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. In light of this, I want you to think this morning about Ephesians chapter 6. And go there with me. If you have your Bible, you can go there with us. If you have a device, you can always sign on to our Wi-Fi. It's free. And use your Bible app. Ephesians chapter 6. We're familiar with the passage. Most of us might be. But I want to make sure that we understand it in light of what we're talking about this morning. The creation of the heavenly host. Now listen to what it says in chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, I was raised in church. I only spent three months in public education. I went to Christian school all of my life, had memory verses I had to quote every week. I attended something called Bible Quiz, which was really awesome. Uh, in a season of my life when I was a teenager, memorized the book of Hebrews and First and Second Peter and was questioned on it. We went to like competitions to ask, answer questions about the authorship and all that stuff. I've heard this, these words all my life. I'm not saying that as a pat on my back. I'm saying there are people in this room who are in the same boat. And you've said, for we wrestle not against principle, you know, it's not a, a physical warfare. It's a spiritual warfare. But we might have missed this where it says against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness, the Bible says, that are in the heavenly places or the heavenly realm. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why would you have to have armor on? Because there's a war going on, okay? Because there's a battle ensuing when Jesus Christ, stick with me for a second here, when Jesus Christ returns at the tribulation, in that time, he will bring with him, Revelation chapter 19 says, a heavenly host. All the armies of heaven will come with him and he will take the beast and the false prophet. He'll defeat them and throw them and cast them away. He'll put them in chains. He'll defeat them again. He is a defeated foe. He can be a defeated foe in your life and he will someday get his final punishment and resting place. God is more than enough to conquer this creature who we speak about. Number three is this. Satan is a fallen angel with a free will. 
You have to understand that theologically. When you, when you think about God and who he is and we say he's a good, good father and we think about those things, we can potentially think that the devil's on the opposite side, that he has equal power of wickedness and darkness. That's not true. He's a created being and he has a free will. He chose disobedience and pride. It's time that we as the church people would choose obedience over disobedience, that we wouldn't just do something because we feel like it's okay or that it's good, but we would check the source of the truth of the word of God and say, I wonder if I should be in this or be part of this. It's God's word for us that brings a light and a life to us, and he doesn't want us to live in disobedience because disobedience, I want you to hear me, is exactly what the enemy plays off of. Every time the people of Israel disobeyed God, consequences came. You are not a good parent if you don't discipline your child when they disobey. I'm gonna give you that parenting advice. It's free today, all right? You don't have to put anything extra in the offering. But if you've got a kid who disobeys and you don't correct that disobedience, you're not a good parent. Can some parents say amen? <laughs> I was with a couple the other night and I was having dinner and I witnessed discipline outside of my own home. I witnessed a loving parent discipline her son. And she said, no, you can't have that. And boy, he got to kicking and screaming. And she said, that's the second time and you don't get a third time. No. And I said, you know what? I know there are some some different approaches to parenting, but I'm going to tell you, if you let them get away with murder now, they actually probably will get away with murder later, okay? <laughs> All right, so getting back to the devil because we're talking about disobedience. The second thing is this. Yeah, and hey, college kids, do you remember the days where your parents disciplined you and you hated them for it, right? You're like, why are you so mean to me? Why do you hate me? Why did you ground me? It's because they loved you. They want you to be good citizens of this world. They want you to know that discipline comes when you get a job. Hello? Come on. All right. Back at it. Okay. He chose disobedience and pride. His objective, the enemy's objective, is not to be unlike God. It's not for him to be opposite. You've got to understand his actual goal is to be God. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 14. And I'm going to preach as long as it takes today. Amen. Isaiah chapter 14. It'll be short. I'm just, don't worry if you got football games on and all that stuff. This week, the Patriots are on a bye week. It's a good, um, okay, we won't talk about that. But I'm excited. They're doing good. How'd your college team do yesterday? Anybody? Good? Woo. Horrible? Ugh, not so good? Yeah. I hope that chatter gave you enough time to get there. Isaiah chapter 14. It says this in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. 
Verse 15, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. I want you to understand the imagery that's present here. The enemy from the beginning of time has sought to exalt himself above God. And his final resting place is in what we know as the bottomless pit and the lake of fire. It's the deepest depth you can go. God knows what he's doing when he punishes the enemy in that way. Listen to the pride that's represented there. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high. It's important that you understand this about the enemy. There is only, this is number four, there is only one Satan and he holds no qualities of deity. So if we're talking about what we, if you want a big word, you can tell some friends about at work on Sunday, you had a, a lesson in angelology, demonology, and Satanology today, okay? If we're talking about this specific understanding, we have to understand that Satan himself has no qualities of deity because he's a creature and he wasn't created with those things. He does have those who serve him. Scripture seems to indicate in Revelation chapter 12 that a third of the heavenly host followed him when he fell. So he's got an army of his own that have all chosen to walk the way with him. But he is only one and he cannot be in every place at every time. And I don't think you're a big enough deal for him to bother you personally. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> okay, take a spoonful of sugar with it. I'm just saying, I don't think that I'm that big of a deal for Satan himself personally to come and attack me and to be adversarial toward me. But he has a lot of little minions, not the yellow kind, but other kind. He has a lot of demons and devils that work for him that are part of his army in his ranks that he can send to do things. So what should we as believers do? I want you to know these things this morning. Number one about the enemy, he has limitations. We've said he's not God, he's not a deity in any way, shape, or form, he's a creature. That means he can't be omnipresent. That means he can't be omnipotent. He's not all powerful. He's not all knowing. He can't be everywhere at once. The second thing is he's been conquered. First John chapter three, verse eight. I'm telling you, it's like the guy on the, on the boxing ring floor, okay? He's been knocked down, but he's not completely out of his misery just yet. He's still squirming around, trying to get up, trying to mobilize his faculties in order to keep in the fight. And this is what the enemy is doing. He's a defeated foe, but first John three, eight says this, the son of God was made manifest in order to destroy the works of the devil. Oh, I wish every believer would let the Son of God destroy the work of the devil in their life and in their heart, in their home, in their marriage, in their choices. Amen. He's been conquered. Another thing about him is you should be on guard. That's what you should know this morning. You are not the only one performing recon. Yes, you serve the Almighty God creator of the universe, the uncreated one, the only one who is uncreated. And he has 
given you gifts, abilities. The Bible says, and it's very clear, he's given you a purpose and a call in your life. He wants you to fulfill. He desires your good. But the enemy is on the other side performing recon against you. And we must be the ones who understand we're not the only one performing recon. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant. What does that word vigilant mean? Come on, somebody help me out. Absolutely, that's exactly right. To be on watch and to be on guard, to, be, to make sure that you're not falling asleep or going to breakfast at 7.45 in the morning every morning so the enemy knows when to bomb you. He knows the temptations that you face. Are you with me this morning? He knows because he's performed recon in your own life, in your own heart, in your own home. He sees his enemies that, he, that are working with him, his minions see. So the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Scripture gives that imagery and it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that we understand Christ to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and yet the enemy of God and the enemy of his people is masquerading in a lion's costume. He is like a ravenous lion who hasn't been fed for years and years and years seeking just what place he can get into your life so that he can devour you. I'm talking about freedom today, just like we were last week. There's hope that even if the enemy has gotten a foothold in your life, even if you've let down your defenses, even if you've forsaken some aspect of your faith, God is still God all by himself and his grace is sufficient to help pick you up, dust you off and get you back in your armor and ready for the fight. The next thing is this, you ought to deny Satan any foothold. Now, when I talk about a foothold, I took my daughters to the Children's Museum yesterday. We had a really good time. Uh, they had a really good time. And um, they, uh, there's a wall, there's a rock wall in, in the building where you can go and you can hang on these little things and you can climb around and get to this place where it says, if you hit the buzzer, you're the winner. You hit the little red buzzer, the button, and the light goes off and makes a sound and you're like, ooh, I won. The things that Brighton was carrying on her weight are called footholds. They're places where she could put her foot to rest to get that grip that she needed to continue to go on. So using that same understanding, the Bible says to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, don't give place to the devil. If you're going to be vigilant, that means you've got to be careful about the choices you make. You've got to be careful how you raise your kids. You've got to be on alert 100% of the time and not allow him to give any foothold. That's why I give that stern warning at the beginning of this message and I'll preach that same message to the day I die. I want every believer that I ever meet to live free from the bondage of offense. I know that people hurt you. I know that bad stuff happens. I've been hurt myself. I've had crazy things happen in my own life which would give me what I feel the right 
to hold that offense and to nestle it next to my chest and carry it for the rest of my life. But God himself wants you to be free. So even when you carry something small and you say, that's not the enemy, that's just pastor got me mad or so-and-so did something that offended me or I wasn't included in that invitation or I did this or I did that. We can get ourselves all up twisted and carry that with us and God is up there going, no, you've given him a foothold. Don't allow him to get his claw in you. The last is this, and we read the passage, so I won't read it again. Ephesians chapter six, put on the whole armor of God. Make sure that you understand what that means. Live life today in the reality that there is an enemy who's seeking to steal, kill, and destroy your marriage, your job, your relationship with your kids, your finances, everything. He is attempting, and all of his workers are attempting to get us off our game and to knock us out of the race of faith that we're running, like the Apostle Paul says. And by God, I want each one of us to be able to say when we stand before the Lord, Lord, we've done all we could, and he will reply and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So put on the whole armor of God so that you will not be defeated by a defeated foe because that's all he is, amen?